Hi there. How you doing? It's great to see you. Um, I spent the summer of 1995 touring with uh, my band. Uh, our first album had just come out, and uh, we were playing uh, every night in a different city. And um, so we were kind of on our East Coast tour, and so we were going, you know, kind of starting uh, northeast, kind of working our way down. We were playing in Atlanta um, one night, and the uh, promoter of the show, we had played the show, got done, and then the promoter uh, forgot to book us a hotel, because uh, that's, you know, what good promoters do. And um, so we weren't sure what we are going to do, so we ended up crashing at a friend of ours' uh, apartment uh, who lived in the city, and um, it, was, it was kind of a weird uh, situation, because... Um, as this was, it was right before the 96 Olympics that were in Atlanta. So like people were packing in the city. It was July of, uh, of 96 or I'm sorry, it was not July of 95. And it was so hot. I mean, it's like, I don't know if you've ever been to Atlanta over the summer, but there's only one thought when you're in Atlanta over the summer. And that is, how do I get out of Atlanta, uh, over the summer? It was just so absolutely boiling hot. And, um, it was over. It was so. It was over a hundred degrees. We got done with the show. It was probably I don't know one in the morning or so. And um, so we get to this guy's uh, place, and uh, he only had. There was only one room that had AC. He had one of those window ACs. And uh, so the first person that got up claimed uh, a spot on the floor in in his room, which had the AC. I was one of the last guys to get up there, and so I ended up um, in the living room, but there was an air mattress there at least, and so I had, uh, so I said, all right, I'll just sleep there, but like I said, it was just so hot, and uh, I, I, you know, just, it, it was so just, you know, humid and whatever, so I took off as many articles of clothing as I could without making it awkward um, for, for the other guys, and so in the morning, um, my buddy Jason, who was, who was with me, was part of our band, um, he uh, woke me up. It was, I mean, it was probably like 11 in the morning or so. And uh, he woke me up because we had to leave and go to uh, Birmingham uh, that, that morning, or drive that day, because we were playing a show in Birmingham, Alabama that night. And so he says, hey, Bob, get up. We got to, you know, get going, hop in the shower, whatever, get going. And I go to get up, and I can't move. Uh, now, not because I had a, like a prom or anything, but I had sweat so much during the night that my skin was literally stuck to the air mattress. The sweat had caused some kind of adhesive with the plastic. It was one of those old air mattresses that didn't have like the fuzzy part on the one side. It was just like basically a giant rubber tube. So I was stuck. So this guy, my, my buddy Jason, had to literally put one foot in the air mattress and then peel me off. Imagine like a human fruit roll up. It even made like the suctioning sound as we were, um, as we were, you know, get like, and see, there's something that happens that once um, someone has to peel you off of uh, like a bedding device, you go beyond friendship at that point. You know, it's like, you know, you, you try to be cool. It's like, dude, I've peeled you off of an air mattress in your boxers. Like, there's no more cool here. Um, and, and so like, you know, and, and that's kind of what happens. You kind of move beyond friendship uh, at, at that at that moment. And uh, it's 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 amazing to me. And I don't know if you have this in your life. I hope you do. I hope you have a few relationships that um, that there there's people that maybe you aren't related to, but you feel as though you are. There's people that that you are um, 
you know, you have some shared experience, some circumstance or something that that kind of glues you together. And it's so it goes it goes beyond buddies, beyond friendship. And that can happen. I mean, that can happen. It'll happen a couple of times in your life, more than likely. But it certainly happens uh, in the church, the body of Christ, the family of God. The Bible says it this way. It says, so now you Gentiles uh, are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are now citizens with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. You see, you know what's just an amazing thing? Um, You may be the only child in your physical family. You may be the only child in your physical family, but when you came into the body of Christ, you were now you have all kinds, hundreds and hundreds of brothers and sisters, thousands, millions of brothers and sisters in your spiritual family. You may have grown up in a home without your dad in your physical house, but that 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 is of no consequence, you know, in, in some ways, because in God's house, you have a heavenly father who loves you and cares for you, who will never leave you and never forsake you. Uh, you have fathers in the faith who will help you grow in your faith and help you make the right choices as you walk with the Lord. You know, maybe you had a mom who wasn't everything that you hoped that that she would be. But in God's house, there are godly women that that can be the mom that you never had. And this is the point that Paul is making uh, to the church at Thessalonica. He's going to show them how this family dynamic works in God's house. And and here's uh, here's the part that I love, is that... Um, in most families, you don't get to pick who you're related to. In most families, you don't, I don't know about you, but you have this, um, you know, you go to like, like every Thanksgiving and Christmas, you're reminded of the insanity that you're related to, you know, and, and you're like, how did we come out of the same gene pool, you know? And, uh, but, but then there's amazing, I, I don't know about you, but I, I go to like a family reunion and there really are some amazing people in my family that I love so much. And then there's some people that I'm just, I don't even know. I, I just think some of them are adopted. Um, and then there's always like the weird family member, like what's up with that guy. And, uh, there, every family has like that one person like, yeah, well, you know, you got to love them. Uh, you know, and, uh, and, 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 and you might be thinking like, I don't have a weird member of the family. Yes, you do. You just happen to not know that it's you. All right? And, uh, but, you know, it's okay. But can I tell you this? And this is the truth. Do you know that God's family even has those people too? It, it does. You know, let me read you a couple of verses. I love it. Look at your outline. Check out what it says. It says, uh, so now, I'm sorry, uh, in First Peter 2, uh, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, let me read it to you from the King James, okay? Here's what it says in the King James. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. You've run into those Christians before, right? You ever, you ever have those guys like, hey, I'm a Christian and I'm also a super weirdo. Uh, and it's like, well, they don't really say that, just like their actions say that. Um, and you meet these guys and your first thought is like, hey, I'm glad we're going to be in both in heaven. I just hope we're on different parts of town. You know, um, like there's this, there's this old saying, I don't even know where it came from, but it says, um, you know, to live above with those we love, now that would be a glory, but to live below with those we know, that's another story. Uh, and so, there, you know, you have that. Uh, so let me ask you this, and this is kind of the question as we talk about spiritual family and all this, what, how does this relate to what you just saw? How does this relate to how to prepare for the end of the world? Um, and, and it seems like this would have nothing to do one for another. And, and I want to explain to you, because I think it's important, um, 
what the, um, what the Apostle Paul is doing here as he's leading up to talking about the rapture, the second coming, you know, wars and rumors of wars and all that kind of stuff. I mean, what is, what is Paul actually uh, doing? And, and what he's doing, and I think it's, it's really important to notice, is that he's kind of leading us up to that. He doesn't just start there. If you remember, the chapter 1, which we started last week at our anniversary service, was about um, this idea of being ready. And then he kind of moves us into now, well, how do you be ready? You've got to have a spiritual family. Then he's going to move us into chapter 3 about the idea of influence. If Jesus is coming back, how do we have influence with those who are around us, those that we care about, to lead them into a relationship with Christ? Uh, when we get to chapter 4, the first part of chapter 4, he's going to talk about um, the idea of us um, uh, living lives of holiness and purity and, li- and doing the, knowing and doing the will of God. And then he's going to lead us into all the stuff about, now what is going to happen? But all the stuff that needs to happen, there, there's this idea that we've got to kind of ramp up to this, and that's exactly what he's doing here. So what does this have to do with preparing for the end of the world? Well, really everything. Because it's, uh, it's in your spiritual family that we learn the kind of lives that God wants us to live as we wait for his return and as we do the things that he wants us to do until he returns. So I'm going to invite you to open with me to First um, Thessalonians chapter 2. That's where we're going to begin. I want to tell you three things about a spiritual family, what a spiritual family should have, what you should have as we, um, as, as we get started. Now here's where he's going to start in, uh, in verse 1. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming was not, uh, to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before, we were spitefully treated in Philippi. As you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our uh, exhortation did not come from error nor uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as to please men, but God who tests our hearts. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the first thing I want to tell, tell you uh, in, in, in our time together. And that is this, is that it, when it comes to a spiritual family, what do we need to have in, in our lives and our spiritual family? And that is this, is that, that I can exhort like a brother. Exhort like a brother. And I, I want you to notice something that Paul doesn't do in, this, in these verses. What Paul can do is start making demands of what he's telling them to do, commanding them to do, ordering them to do. And instead, Paul doesn't do that. Instead, what Paul does, and I want you to notice this, is that even though he's an apostle, even though he's the guy who planted this church, he could cite pastoral authority, apostolic authority, and yet he doesn't do that. Why? Because there's some things that are better told by a brother than by an authority figure. A brother doesn't give commands. A brother exhorts. A brother encourages. A brother leads the way. A brother isn't a salesman trying to hustle you, a policeman trying to force you. And that's why Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, he says this, he says, our exhortation didn't come from error or uncleanness or deceit. Three words. What is he saying in these words? Error. If you want to jot down in your notes, error literally uh, could refer just not just error like a mistake, but it's error with ill intent. It's deceit, fraud. It's purposely trying to mislead uncleanness. He says it wasn't an error. It wasn't an uncleanness. It wasn't in deceit. 
uncleanness. If you, uh, it's the Greek word a catharsis. If you've ever maybe had a tough time, you just needed to, oh man, I just needed to talk to somebody about it. And you just kind of let it all out. And then someone felt better. And, um, they, they said, uh, man, it was a real cathartic experience, meaning that it was a purifying or cleansing experience that you had. Um, and this is an a cathartic experience that it's, it's not a cleansing thing. It's not a purifying thing. In fact, it's the very opposite. And that's what he's saying here. That we didn't come to you like that. We didn't come to you uh, in, in, in that kind of way. We didn't come to you. Uh, it's it's, it's a, a motive that's pure, not a motive that's deceitful. He talks, uh, he uses that word deceit, which literally means a trick or a scheme. You see, when it's a loving brother or sister, the motive is pure. Let me explain if I can. My, uh, I have a daughter that's five and a half. I have a son that's three and a a daughter that's nine months. Uh, when my son, um, well, let me tell you, first, the thing you need to understand is that my daughter loves sweets, loves sweets, chocolate, um, anything of, of that, of that nature. Um, and my son really doesn't care. Um, my son, you know, like he likes, he likes M&Ms, but he'll just as well take a cucumber over M&Ms any day. You know, it's like, I don't know where he gets that from, but he didn't get it from me. Um, and, and so anyway, my daughter, on the other hand, lo- loves sweets. So when we were potty training Xander, um, we, were, uh, we were trying to get him, you know, like how do we get him to go on the potty and not use a diaper and all of this. And what ended up happening is, is that we resorted to bribery because we felt that's what God wanted. Um, and so my wife said, listen, if you go number one on the potty, uh, you can have three M&M's. So he was very excited about that. And then we said, but if you go number two on the potty, because we couldn't get him to, to go number two on the potty. And uh, even when he was, and, and you say, man, I'm really glad I got up for this. Uh, it, I promise it's going somewhere. And uh, so we just said, listen, my wife was like, listen, if you go uh, number two on the potty, we will give you 20 M&Ms. 20. I don't even know how many come in a pack, but that seems like a lot. And, uh, and so anyway, one night it was, you know, my kids go to sleep between 7.30 and 8 o'clock. Xander probably closer to 7.30, Mia closer, towards eight, closer to 8. But anyway, um, they were, um, <laughs> they're, it's about maybe 7.15 or so in the evening, and Xander has got to go, and he just runs as fast as he can to the bathroom, hops on the potty, does his business, and just yells, I did it, I pooped on the potty. So excited, there's rejoicing in our house, and Mia runs to the kitchen, and we have this Lightning McQueen cup, that's filled with M&Ms. And so she counts out um, 20, uh, you know, she counts out 20 M&Ms and runs to the, the bathroom to give them to him. Now he's still sitting. She's like, here's 20 M&Ms. Like, let's slow down. Like, I don't know who eats in the bathroom, but we're not going to start that. And um, so anyway, she runs in there, Carrie's in there. And uh, Mia says, Xander, here's your M&Ms. And Carrie says, listen, Mia, it's only, I mean, it's 7.15. You can't start giving the, the, you can't give the kid M&Ms um, at, at, right before he's going to go to sleep. He's never going to go to sleep. She's like, let him have three M&Ms. So she says, okay. So she counts out three M&Ms and gives them to Xander. And then she pops the 17 in her mouth. And, uh, and carries and sh- like, j- now we're like not, you see, there's no manual for what you're supposed to do in this situation. Like, I really wish there was, you know, some kind of book. You know, I wish Bob Barnes had written the book. Like, what do you do when, anyway, that happens. He didn't write that. So I'm trying to figure out, like, what, what you, you know, you do. And, like, because my first reaction is to laugh. 
because I think my, my kids just do this hilarious stuff, but I have to like, you know, like tell them the right thing to do instead of just make it an illustration like I'm doing it right now. And uh, so my wife says, you know, Mia, why did you do that? Why did you eat those M&Ms? And she's like, and she can't, she's got her mouth full of M&Ms, she can't answer. Um, but here, here's the point, and, and the thing that I love, and I was asking her about it, I was like, Mia, did you do this because you really, you know, you wanted, um, like, you wanted M&Ms? She's like, no, I really wanted to give them to Xander. And I'm like, you know, Mia, that's a really cool thing. Um, it was the right thing, just done at the wrong time. And, 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 that's, and that's a really awesome thing, that you just wanted, you wanted to rejoice with your brother. And see, that's what a real brother or sister does. They want to rejoice. The Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. And that's exactly what Paul says. There's no fraud or uncleanness or no tricks when you're dealing with a real brother or sister. Uh, it's, it's a safe place that, that, we, can, that we can call home. This, this should be a safe place that we can call home. Now, let me tell you what happens. And we get, um, we get requests every week, uh, seemingly, about people who want to sell stuff or let the congregation know about some new product that comes out and can we just set up a table outside and, you know, just let people know about what insurance plans are available and, and we, every time we say no. And it's like, well, don't you want, you know, uh, don't you want your church to know? Yeah, well, you know, we'll maybe some other time, but we're not going to do it. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, well, what about, can we sell Christmas wreaths for a club? No, we're not going to do that. Um, and, and uh, well, can we do like a bake sale? And who's the bake sale for? Well, it's my mortgage. And, uh, well, we're not going to do that. Um, and uh, we're not going to do that. Why? Because here's the thing. We want this to be a safe place. We want it to be a safe place for people. We want it to be a safe place for people to come in and not feel like they're being hustled while they're coming in the doors. You see... This, my friends, is the heart of God. In fact, there was a time when Jesus saw just the opposite happening, that it wasn't a safe place, that brothers and sisters weren't loving each other. Instead, they were praying on each other, not praying for each other. They were praying on each other. And, the, and the, what it makes Jesus do totally messes up our picture of this gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus shows up, starts overturning tables, starts making a whip and whipping people. And that's not like, doesn't really show up in the movies all the time. You know, it's usually like Jesus loves the little children. It's never like Jesus whipping the people like that. I don't know. I never, my kids never have to color that picture. Um, But let me read this to you. This is in, um, this is in Mark chapter 11, because I, I want to park here for a minute and just show you what was happening, because I think we see the heart of God and we see the person of Jesus in, in, this, in this moment. Here's, here's what we read. It says, um, and when they arrived back in Jerusalem, that's Jesus and his disciples, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. Now, let me, let me do something if I can, if you can pull up this picture. This is a picture of uh, the temple in Jerusalem. It's a model of the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, one of the things that is, um, is important to note is that this is kind of, um, come on, um, this, all right, sorry, this is like faulty technology, there we go, uh, so we have, the, this is a model of the temple in Jerusalem, um, this is the temple proper, these are the inner and outer courts, and then this is really the outer courts, so you would come in, you would come in through the south, um, just if you have an idea, uh, 
Um, this is what was called the Antonia Fortress. Uh, this is a Roman installation set up because they figured if there was going to be a riot, it would probably start at the temple. Um, so everyone would come in from the south to worship. If you want to know, like, well, where's like the Dome of the Rock? Where would that sit today in, in, uh, in relation? The Dome of the Rock would be uh, kind of over here towards the middle. The, the, uh, the temple was more to the north uh, of the Temple Mount. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, but people would come in through this area, and they, they would come in, and you'll see this area on the outside. You'll see this little fence here. Now, this is an important fence um, for you to know, this one on the outside. This is what was called, this outer area, what was called the court of the Gentiles. Now, not because there were only Gentiles, but that's as far as they could go. The, um, th- that, that's as far as they could go. And uh, on that fence, there was written an inscription, and it was written in three languages, and it said this. No man of another nation can enter within this fence or enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame when his death ensues. So it's not like, welcome, you know, nice to see you. It's, hey, if you're not Jewish, you go beyond this wall, you're dead, and you have yourself to blame for it. Um, That's pretty much how it is. But let's say you weren't a Gentile, you were a devoted um, Jewish woman. You could actually go past this court of the Gentiles. You could come into the temple doors. and You could come into uh, this area that was called the court of the women. Now, uh, that's not, there weren't just women there, but that's as far as women could go. And then you would come up to this top here, and this was called the court of the men of Israel. This is where the men would take their sacrifices and, um, you know, offer them to the priest. Just beyond these doors were, is what was called the court of the priest. This is where the priest did the sacrifices. Then uh, you would go, and this was the temple proper. The temple, it was not that big of a building. You're talking about a building that was basically um, about 15 feet wide and 45 feet deep. And uh, the first room was 15 feet wide, 30 feet deep, and it was uh, what was called the holy place. That's where like the menorah was, the table of showbread and all that kind of stuff. Then there was a veil. And only the high priest once a year could go beyond that veil into what was in this 15 by 15 room that was called the, uh, that was called the Holy of Holies. And uh, in, in this area is where the Ark of the Covenant was, the mercy seat. If you've ever seen, um, uh, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, then you have a pretty good idea as to what that looks like because they did a pretty good job of that. But here's the problem. So, like, what, what makes Jesus so upset in these verses? And what does it have to do with our text that we're looking at? Um, the, the religious leaders set up their, their shops uh, in the court of the Gentiles. And what was happening was, is that, <clears throat> what they, you have to understand what was happening in this, in this verse. It was Passover. There's about 2 million people in Jerusalem at this time for Passover. And uh, they are, you know, there's people all over Jerusalem filling the streets, coming in and out of the temple. And because of this, um, these religious leaders thought it would be a great time to kind of set up shop for them to make a buck. And what they did was um, they would have these animals. So people would bring their animals to sacrifice. And then the priest would inspect them and say, well, it's not that good. You know, it's got to be without spot or blemish. And this one looks pretty good, but it's not really temple approved. We have our own temple approved, um, you know, animals that uh, you could that we could, you know, we could give you i mean they're you know they're a little more expensive you know it was like it was like shopping at whole foods you know it's like 10 times more than like Publix prices um so you know they, they would do that and it's like and, and where were they where were they going to go right they had they had no nowhere to move nowhere to go 
they just had to, you know, you had to pay these astronomical prices if you wanted to sacrifice. If you've ever been to Disney World and bought a $17 cheeseburger, you've had the same experience. Okay? And so, um, you know, here, this is the, the, the kicker is, is that these Gentiles were coming in and they weren't using Jewish currency. They were using Roman currency. Roman currency had a picture of Caesar on it, which Jews considered profane. And so they wanted to exchange that money. It's like, well, you can't spend, you can't give the temple shekel. You can't give it with Roman money. You've got to use our exchange rate. When they used the exchange rate, they were, the, the exchange rate was astronomical. Um, and all of this was hindering Gentiles who wanted to worship God, to draw near to God. And this is what angered Jesus and caused him to just kind of let loose and start turning over tables and kicking over chairs and all, and all of this. Why? Because a brother, a real brother, doesn't allow another brother to be taking, taking advantage of, of like that. You see, this is what happens in a real spiritual family. In a real spiritual family, you don't just um, try, to, try to pull something. No, instead, you're, you have their best interests at heart. You have, it's, it, it's, it's, it's the, you have the very best as to what you want uh, to see happen in their lives. That's what Paul says. He says, listen, we weren't trying in deceit, in, in uncleanness, in error, you know, trying to trick. None of that. What we were trying to do, we wanted the very, very best for you. And because of that, what happens? Well, look at what happens next. He says he can exhort like a brother. But look at verse 5. He says, neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Uh, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For remember, brethren, our labor and toil, laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to say, uh, to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, the first thing I said was is that we can exhort like a brother. The second thing I want to tell you is that we can love like a mother. There's something special about moms that cannot be duplicated. My wife calls me the fun parent because I will wrestle with my kids. And uh, when, my kid, when I come home and we start to wrestle, which is pretty much what happens almost every night when I come home from the office, um, their goal um, is to hurt me in some way because that's, they think it's hilarious when I'm in pain. Uh, and I'm like, I don't really even know how this started, like uh, why someone would think that. But anyway, so they'll like elbow me and knee me and punch me or whatever. And I'm wrestling with them on the couch. And anyway, and, um, but when one of them gets hurt, now, the game changes when, they, when one of them gets hurt. When one of them gets hurt, now it's, uh, it's I want mommy. And I'm like, you want mommy? What, can I, let me get you some ice. I don't want ice. I want mommy. And then Carrie will come over and say, oh, honey, I'm sorry that you're hurt. Do you want ice? Yes, please. I'm like, I just offered you ice. Like the, uh, this is a, about a week or so ago. Um, Mia fell down and hurt herself while we were joking around. And uh, she, asked, uh, she asked for Carrie. And I said, listen, don't worry about mommy. I'm going to take care of it. What do you want mommy to do? To rub my leg. Okay, I'll rub your leg. And then she just looks at me and she's like, no. Mommy, I'm hurt and puppy isn't rubbing my leg the right way. And then Carrie comes over and rubs her leg the same way I was. And she's like, 
that's the right way. You know, and I'm like, come on. You know, now the thing is, is this is what happens. This happens um, in, in the family of God is that um, you don't have to be a mom to have the ministry of a mom um, in, in the family of God. Is that there are those who have this incredible mom-like gifting. And they just have this ability that they can comfort and share truth in such a way uh, where people are blessed and helped because of their love and just the caring. And, um, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, I, as much as I appreciate and admire this gift, I don't have it. My staff realizes that I don't have it. And um, they, they know that I'm much more of a teacher and a trainer than like the comforter mom type. That's why, um, you know, our, our staff, they don't even let me meet with most people. That's true. It's true. Like, I'll talk to someone and they're like, Pastor Bob, we just want to meet my husband and I or my wife and I want to sit with you. And I'm like, yeah, let's make that work out. And they're like, yeah, that ain't going to work out. Well, what happened? You know, and, and, and then they'll say uh, to that person and to me, do you know the streak? Did you tell them the streak that you have? Well, I don't, I'm sure that won't matter. No, it's going to matter. What's, this, what's the streak that you have? Well, every couple I've ever met with in 12 years has left our church. Um, I don't know what it is. I have this incredible ability that someone meets with me one time and they never want to see me again. Um, and it's, it's amazing how, how it works. Um, and so the, they, they'll say, well, we can have you meet with one of the other pastors who are much nicer. And, you know, it's funny because they'll come out like, hey, how'd it go? I'll, I'll, I'll be there and like, oh, it was good. You know, Pastor John or Pastor Mark, they shared this verse. And I'm like, I know that verse. I could have told you that one. I got a couple more. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, it's okay. We know, we know about you. Uh, and, uh, you know, now the point is this, and, and I'm grateful that because we're a family, there's people that have, we have all different types of gifts. The Bible says this, it says, for as we have many teach, uh, many members in one body, all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. I mean, think about, if you could, a, a nursing mom's love. That she wakes up in the middle, all hours of the night, sacrificing her own comfort and sleep for the sake of nourishment for a young child. And if you are the parent of a newborn, first of all, I'm amazed that you're even here. I'm amazed that you can walk and talk. Um, because, listen, I, I have three kids, and I remember when all of them were newborns, and I was, I mean, I was like out of my mind. And I wasn't even doing anything. I was just there. Like, what happened? She woke up six times. Don't worry. You snored the whole time. Well, I'm exhausted. Well, you know. And because uh, I had a dream that that happened. And woo! You know. And, uh, you know. But when you're the parent of a newborn, it's a one-way relationship. Newborns only take early on. And, but because the love is so strong, it doesn't even matter because mom willingly sacrifices to meet all of baby's needs. And Paul writes that he loved this church so much that he loved this church with the same kind of unselfish love and care that moms have with the newborn. And this is one of the things that I love about the family of God. And this is one of the things that I love about people when they reach maturity in Christ is that church no longer becomes about what they can get and it becomes much more about what they can give. You see, they stop uh, wondering, oh, what am I going to get out of this message? And instead they come to church saying, man, 
what am I going to learn that I can impart to someone else? You know what's an amazing thing to me right now? There are people who are serving. There's a whole host of people serving in our children's ministry, in our youth ministry, um, who aren't going to hear today's message. And the reason is, is because they've decided to serve the Lord um, by serving your kids and my kids. And it's that, ty- that mom type of love. It's that mom type of maturity that they want to express. Because maturity is moving from it only being about me to the role of a loving mom who wants to see other people nourished and grow and we're even willing to sacrifice ourselves a bit for the sake of them. You see, we erroneously think at times that the measure of maturity is, how, is uh, what we know. Instead, that's only part of it. It's one piece. Instead, the measure of maturity is how much we're willing to sacrifice for the sake of another person. And let me give you this last couple of verses. This is the last thing I want to tell you. He says this. He says, you are witnesses in God also of how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. That you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the last thing I want to share with you. And that is that I can teach like a father in God's family. You know, it wasn't one of my finer moments, I'll admit. But a while ago, I told you this story um, that I was walking. Uh, I was in my house. Um, my daughter was younger and uh, my son was real young. But I, I walked by my wife and for whatever reason, I just walked by and I smacked her on the butt. And uh, it's OK, though. We're married. Um, and so but what I didn't realize is that my daughter was about three at the time and she saw me do it. And she walked by and then she smacked my wife on the butt. And then uh, Carrie was like, Mia, what are you doing? She's like, it's okay. I'm just like Poppy. And, uh, and then now what's, you would think that that would be enough. The problem is, is that now my son Xander does it too. And she, my wife is not really happy with me about all this. Um, she blames me um, for these habits that I give my kids that they shouldn't have. Um, but now here, here's the thing that happens. See, the dads, can I just tell you this? The question is not if you're going to teach your kids. The question is, what are you going to teach your kids? Now, I will readily admit that is not one of the skills I want to teach my kids. Uh, it's just they just picked it up. And it's, it's amazing to me, um, like what my kids pick up. And it's, you know, even stuff that's like these totally useless habits um, that they pick up. But they just pick them up from me. Um, because they're, they're, they're watching me and, and they're just examining what I do and then they're doing the same thing. What Paul does, because he knows that, he knows what they're, what, that this church is going to model what they see him do. He says, here are the three things that we did when we were with you. And he states them in verse 11. He says, and you know how we exhorted you, comforted, and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. And I'm telling you, someday I'm going to do a message just on this one verse because I think it's so powerful. But uh, he describes, Paul does, what a true spiritual father does um, for his kids. And, and he does it by describing three powerful words, exhort, comfort, and encourage. And here's what they, here's what, what they mean. Because uh, I, I started digging into the original language to kind of really figure out what it is that's being uh, discussed here. This term, exhort, if you're a note taker, is, uh, is the Greek term parakleo. 
It's the word parakleo, which is a compound word. It's the word para, where we get our word parallel. And then it's the word uh, kleo, uh, K-L-E-O, which actually means to help. It's from the, the Greek word kletos, which means to help. And um, so parakletos means to come alongside and help. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses this word in the proper sense, uh, the parakletos. Um, referring to the work of the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit is the comforter. He wants to come alongside and help us. Then he uses the word comfort, which is now a totally uh, different Greek word. It's same word para in the beginning, but para muthiameo. Now you can figure out how to spell that in your own time. Um, and so, well, what does that mean? Para, come alongside. Muthiameo means to speak. So it's to come alongside and speak the right word at the right time. And then lastly, he uses this word for charge. This word charge is used, I don't know, 70 times or so in the New Testament. And it always refers to the same thing. Um, It refers to someone who is a witness or a model, but someone who is showing them exactly how to do it. And so uh, this is what Paul says a real father is. A real spiritual dad is someone who is coming alongside to help, coming alongside to speak the right word at the right time, and someone who's willing and able to model the way. You see, Paul says that this is what he did for this church. It's what spiritual fathers do. Not just, well, this is what you should do. Don't follow my example, but do it this way. No, no, no. They come alongside and help. They say the right word. And also, they model the way. You see, can I tell you this? Some of you grew up without dads. Or you grew up with a dad. And he just barked and yelled orders. That wasn't really all that helpful. Some of you grew up without dads who didn't really teach you the things that you were supposed to know. And so you didn't learn what it means um, to be a man, to be a woman after God. Uh, when I work with young guys, and, and I, there's a group of guys that I work with and spend time with, and uh, one of the things that the number one um, common factor that, that most guys in this young, upcoming generation have um, is that they grew up without a dad. Dad left, a divorce happened, but dad somehow or took off or I don't know my dad or whatever it is or some combination of that or one or the other. And what takes place is, is that they don't know what it means to be a man because there was no father figure in their life and they've just kind of been left to figure out what it means. And so they look at culture and they look at, you know, movies and media and whatever. And that's kind of how they've formulated this idea of what it means to be a man. And then they come to know Jesus. And now then they say, man, everything that I've learned is totally messed up. And I've got to relearn. I've got to unlearn some things and, and relearn um, some other things. To really know what it is that God um, wants me to know. And I recognize that some guys grew up without a dad at all. And you've been trying to figure it out on your own. And here, here's the great news. The great news is you don't have to figure it out all, all, all on your own. That you can actually come, when you come into the family of God, you have now a heavenly father who will never leave you, who will never forsake you. And, that, and listen, God in his love um, will not only be the father you never had or the father you wished you had, but he will also send spiritual fathers into your life that will help you along the way. There's a couple of guys in my life uh, that have had that role in my life. And listen, they, they mean the world to me. There's a couple of guys that, you know, um, they, they see me in that role in their lives. And I, and I can tell you that I don't take it lightly. And my point is this, is that when you enter 
the family of God. He doesn't just um, make up what was lacking in your earthly family. Instead, he comes in and gives you so much more. And, and so where he, he does that, and now he is able to now transform us into the person that he wants us to become. So let me just, I mean, as we kind of take this from up here, and how do we, you know, like rubber meets the road, what am I going to do with this? Um, what do you do? Like maybe you're a single adult. I mean, what, what do I do now? What do I do with this? Here, here's what it means for you. What it means is you don't have to make the same bad choices that you've made in the past. You see, in the past, you didn't have spiritual brothers or mothers or fathers. But now you've come to know Jesus. And there's people who care about you. And, and they care that you make uh, the right choices. And your challenge, listen, this is your biggest challenge. Your biggest challenge is to be open and to receive the wisdom of those around you when they speak it into your life and when they speak it in grace and truth. Your other challenge is to be able to be brotherly, sisterly to those around you, those peers that you have, to be able to lovingly exhort, lovingly encourage, lovingly teach and receive when someone shares it with you. Some of you here, your physical dads, your spiritual dads, can I, if I can speak to you for just a moment, listen, keep investing. Keep investing in those who look to you for wisdom and guidance. Continue to train those under your care, whether it's a physical son or a spiritual son, that, those, that they can learn to hear from God and walk with God. And listen, here's, I, this is just one of the things I think about. I think about this with my... Uh, with my, my three kids. I think about this with the guys that I, I invest in. Um, I think about this with many of you. That I, I want people to look on. And not, this is not in a prideful way, but just in a way that, um, you've been that, that someone's been able to invest in your life. I want to be able to invest in the life of people. And someone say, I want to walk with God like he does. I want the kind of marriage that he has. I want to have the kind of relationship with my kids like how he has with his kids. And man, if God could do in my life and give me the kind of life that he's had, I would be a blessed person. And my friends, I say that to you, not that I necessarily, oh, I just want you to be like me. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, I want better for you than what God has done in my life. And God has done so many amazing things. But I want better for you. And and. I, and yet, listen, if you're a spiritual dad, if you're a physical dad, you want better for your kids than you've had. But if that's the case, here's what you need to do. You've got to really live it. You've got to really do it. You've got to really instill it in the lives of those whom have been entrusted to your care. Those who are open to your influence and counsel. Some of you are physical moms, you're spiritual moms. If I can talk to you for a moment. Can I just tell you this? Be willing. Be willing to serve others and sacrifice for others. Be ready to give of yourself for the sake of other people, knowing that th they may not even be able to ever repay you. Because that's what moms do. They willingly give of themselves. They willingly love. They willingly sacrifice so that the other person is blessed. See, some of, you, um, some of you are here and you're, you're a Christian. And let me just explain um, kind of the typical Sunday thing. You come in because you really like the music. 
You stay because you really like the message, and then you just walk out. And you do that week after week, and you've, you've never done more than just scratch the surface. And it's like, hey, I'm glad you're here to worship. I'm glad you're here for Bible study. But listen, there's something so much deeper than that. There's something that will really solidify and root your relationship with God. And that is um, allowing brothers and sisters into your life. Allowing spiritual moms and dads to speak into your life. Or maybe you're at at a stage of life where you have the ability to, to speak into the lives of others. And maybe that's what God really wants you to do. Can I tell you something? When we ask people to serve, in fact, on the back of your connection card, big part, you know, I want to serve. Can I tell you that it's, it's, it's not like, man, we're just dying for the help and church is going to close down if you don't start serving. You know, it's not really about that. Guess what? It's all going to happen, okay? You know why we, we, um, we, we encourage people and sometimes we even push a little to get people to serve? It's not because we can't find people um, who want to, but because we know the benefit that happens in your life. There's something that happens in your life like it happened in my life as a young Christian. That I began to serve and I began to meet people. There are people now, 20 years later, that I'm still friends with. And, and, and because we just served together, our, our paths began to just intersect in that moment. And we were people that were headed on the same path, on the same trajectory. We met serving and now lifelong friendship. And at the very least... It hasn't been just lifelong friendship, but it was, I, we began to serve and someone had a crisis. Someone had a problem. And there was a brother or a sister there that was able to pray, able to encourage, had the right word at the right time and was able to assist and help. But see, that doesn't happen if you just slip in and slip out. It doesn't happen that way. It happens when you make a decision and you say, I'm going to invest. I'm going to to maybe open myself up a little bit. And I, and I know for some of us, it's a, it's a little um, less natural than others. But if you will, this is, this is your challenge. If you will, God will do something in your life that you never dreamed. Bring relationships into your life, friendships, and not just because you say, man, I need another friend. No, not that. But because you need people that are going in the same direction that you're headed in. Listen, some of you here and you say, Pastor Bob, this is great, but I'm not really someone who walks with God. I'm not even really sure what that means. I'm not really a Christian. Um, what, what do I do with this? See, maybe your story is a lot like my story. See, my story is that I'm the product of a broken home. And I didn't grow up with mom and dad at home, mom and dad at the dinner table. I don't even know what that means. As a kid, I know what it means as a dad but I don't know what it means as a kid. And because I'm the product of a broken home, there was that lack in my life because um, my family was broken. But see, at the age of 19, I came into the family of God and everything began to change. I had brothers and sisters, so many that, that I didn't realize that I could connect with and build friendships with. I, I, I met spiritual moms and spiritual dads, mentors who cared for me and invested in me. And here's what I know, that God wants to do the same work in you. But even more fundamentally than that, you know what I found? I found a father, a spiritual father, a heavenly father, listen, who was willing 
and ready and able to forgive. Forgive me of all the things I've done wrong. A savior who died for me and loves me. And the same thing is true in your life. See, this is where it begins for us. Where it begins is in the place of inviting Jesus Christ into your life. Asking him to come into your life, to forgive you. And as you do, here's what happens. Everything begins to change. You don't find yourself on the outside looking in. Now you find yourself on the inside experiencing everything that we've talked about. Forgiveness, newness of life, peace, hope, forgiveness, mercy, grace. So maybe you're here and you've never made that decision. I want to give you an opportunity to. So if we can, let's pray together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for your love, for your grace, for your word. Thank you for a spiritual family that we can embrace, a spiritual family that we can look to in a time of need. Thank you for you, Lord, a heavenly father who will never leave us or forsake us, who's willing, ready, and able to forgive if we're willing to come to you. Listen, with every head bowed and every eye closed as we're praying together, maybe you would say, Pastor Bob, I just want you to pray for me because I want to invite Jesus Christ to come into my life. I want to ask him um, to forgive me. I want to see him change my life like you've talked about. To transform me, to recreate me, as the Bible says. If you want God to just do this incredible work in your life, as we're praying together, I'm going to simply invite you to raise a hand. I want to pray for you. If you're ready. Yeah, God bless you. See some hands there, hands in the back. God bless you. See your hands there on the side there. God bless you. Or you want the Lord to work in your life, to change your life. Lord, I thank you for those who have lifted a hand. It means that their hearts are open. And so, Lord, I pray that as they pray, that you would do a great work in them. That this may be the day that everything changes. Listen, those of you that lifted your hand, I want to have you repeat a prayer with me. It's not a magic formula, but I'm just going to invite you to say it out loud, most importantly, meaning in your heart. And I know this, that God will hear, answer, and act in your life. Say, Lord God, I open my heart. I invite you inside to be my God, to be my Savior, to be my friend. Forgive me of my sin. Wash me clean. For I've decided today to follow you, Jesus. From this day forever, I'm yours. In Jesus' name.